we were having our men's and women's Bible studies in two different camps. Um, but we're giving the teachers a little break, a little reprieve from their diligence and their steadfastness of studying and teaching us. So we, I'm gonna get, uh, we're going to give them a break for at least, um, at least a month. Oh, sorry about that. Okay, sorry about that. Um, okay, anyway, so we, we have a new, um, kind of a new study. We have some people who will be uh, giving testimonies. We'll have some prayer. Uh, we'll look at some uh, interesting um, apologetic stuff. So it's going to be a little different on Wednesday night, at least for a month. So that should be good, I think. Give everybody a little break and a little change up. Okay, um, so that being said, let's pray and um, we'll dive in. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for another uh, impressive morning, Father, that you presented. You brought the sun up, and you brought us up, and uh, the world is, is moving. We th- ask, Father God, that you would bless our time together, that uh, your grace would uh, just uh, continue to uh, infiltrate our minds, our body, and our souls. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy. Thank God for the uh, extreme gift that you've given us, and that's salvation through our Son, Jesus Christ, your Son, Father God. I would just thank you, Lord, for all that we um, have today that we have freedom, Father God, that we have each other, we have our loved ones still with us. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for the church. Continue to be with uh, Pastor Arno and Lucinda as they are on vacation, that they may have a wonderful time and be afresh, uh, and that their uh, time together would be uh, a one uh, that they would enjoy completely, Lord. Uh, Father God, just continue to be with us uh, this, at this time, and that we would uh, present to you, Father God, our ears and our heart. Father God, help me, Lord, to speak when you want me to speak and to uh, delete anything, Father God, that you don't want me to say, that I, I, I just don't go there. I just thank you, Lord, for just your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, the message is called The Good News. The good news is it's all about grace. It's all about grace, church. All about grace. A soldier just returned from the Iraq War. He had served in the Army. Before entering the war for military service, he had worked for his uncle who owned a small uh, disk drive company. The uncle sold the company and made a killing on the deal. Uh, The army uh, vet invested a considerable amount of his own money in his uncle's uh, enterprise, which yielded an earth-shaking bundle on return on on his investment. It was his longtime desire, though, uh, for him to, he wanted to own a new Jaguar. And it wasn't just a plain old Jaguar. It was a C X75 concept car, which only maybe 50 are made. So he wanted one of those things. It cost about, I don't know, $1.5 million, something like that. Early one morning, he was driving in this remotely populated part of Oklahoma, which he reasoned with the uh, perfect place to find out how fast this car can go. So the speed, mo- uh, speed monitor was easing up at about 180 miles per hour. Now, I looked this up. 9,000 RPMs that can help achieve a car to speed up to 200 miles per hour. That's pretty fast for a car. As a powerful sports car reached the top of this rise, just beyond, a highway patrol man was waiting. Okay? Being a law and abiding citizen, he slammed on the brakes, slid past the officer, 
at 160 miles per hour. And he came to a halt at some distance down the road. Before long, the officer caught up with him and stood beside the sleek convertible. And the officer said, do you have any idea how fast you're going? The officer asked. Well, roughly, was the invasive reply. About 180 miles per hour? The officer said, that's what I thought, yes. So the army vet, vet confessed. Guilt was obvious, and there was no possible excuse to offer. He can only wait to discover what, what's the fiasco is going to happen, how much he's got to pay this ticket. And as he waited for the officer to continue on his spiel, to his amazement, the patrolman asks, would you mind if I took a look at that engine? Can you pop the hood open for me? You've got to remember, the fine points of high-performance automobiles cannot be discussed quickly, so both went into the coffee shop where they could talk further. A while later, both of the men paid their own coffee, uh, coffee bill that is, they shook hands and went their merry way. Our friend the army vent was ecstatic because the officer had not given him a written citation. This is about as close to grace as one can come on this earth, but it's still not quite the standard of biblical grace. I say that because biblical grace would have demonstrated not only the patrolman looking at his engine, not giving him the citation, but the patrolman should have paid for his coffee. Okay? So I like that. So the principle of grace, again, is fundamental to Christianity as that of justice to law, or love is to marriage. Christianity cannot be understood apart from an adequate grasp of grace. So the doctrine of Grace distinguished itself, the Christian faith that is, from every other religion in the whole wide world. Rightly understood and applied properly, the doctrine of grace can revolutionize one's Christian life. It is for this reason that we have determined to spend two years of this fundamental doctrine. Rick, I'm only going to be here for this week and next week, not two years. All right, people are going, two years, whoa, that's a long time. Right, Kiko? No. Only, it's only two weeks, so you only have two weeks. All right, moving on. So, so much for that. So here's a question I have for you this morning. What is grace? Now, first of all, I want you to complete this common American phrases, okay? They're very simple phrases, and we all know about them for the most part. And so I'm going to give you the first two, okay? Two phrases. Uh, I'm going to do knock, knock on wood. You say wood. Okay, that's the first one. It's not rocket science. Is you putting it up there? Okay, okay. Don't put it up there till we uh, get the answer. Okay. Okay, if you get them all right, I get a lunch from you guys. Okay, you get them all right, get a lunch, and we can go and have a good time. Okay, here it goes. All for the uh, enchiladas. Here we go. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. Hey, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. All right. There's no such thing as a free... All right. There's no gain without. Right on. The last one, God helps those who. Oh, I get the lunch. All right, Vince, lunch. Okay. 
So everything about the American way of life teaches us that you get what you get on this earth, and there's no free lunch, and then you make up your own bed and you lay in it. That's, that's the mindset. In America, we are very aware of the values of competition and winning, and we know what it means to work hard and use this elbow grease. We value effort and sweat. We tell people, hey, you get what you deserve in life, okay? And if you want to make something of your life, it's up to you. And if it's, if it's to be, it's up to me, right? That's how it is in America. This is called the American work ethic. The only problem with the American work ethic is God doesn't operate on America work ethic. It makes it very difficult many times for us to relate to God because, you know what, we're in this driven work mentality day in and day out. Here's the thing. The problem is Psalms 145. Psalms 145, verses 8 and 9. It tells us that God, rather than being in a work mode, it says God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. So in verse 8, it's not your, if, it, it, it's not your, if it's not your mental image of God, if you think of God as, as zapping you out because of your sins, you do not have this biblical uh, picture of God. He went to the extremes cost to provide a way that he could both be righteous and merciful in, in forgiving your sins. And he maintains his righteousness in that Jesus paid the full penalty for the sins on the cross. If you will trust in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, you will praise God forever because he gives us abundant grace, church. You can't understand that the Christian life at all unless you understand grace. You know what? It's the heart of our faith. It is the heart of our relationship to God. When you understand grace, you're going to feel closer to God. The more you understand grace, the more you're going to be drawn to God. The more you're going to be loved, show love to God, the more you're going to be grateful to God the Father. Today we're beginning a two-part teaching on grace, and I'm calling it, the good news is it's all about grace. Say that, it's all about grace. Now there's this brilliant, significant Greek word used about 155 times in the New Testament. The word is haris, and it's translated grace. It means a favor bestowed. It means a generous benefit freely given. The sense of it is in the New Testament is that it means a favor bestowed by God through his power to transform a person's life, starting at salvation and then going on from there. Grace is a dynamic and benevolent power that applies the goodness of God and the resources of God to our lives. To do what, church? To save us, to keep us, to enable us, to deliver us, to sanctify us, to glorify us. Grace is this multifaceted diamond, if you will. There are many aspects to grace. Grace is God loving in action. Grace is giving me what I need, not what I deserve. 
Grace is the face God wears when he looks at my failures and he responds in a gracious way. That's what grace is. From all of that, you get the distinct idea that God has not skimped on grace, not at all. Grace for service. We have grace for suffering. In all areas, his benevolent kindness, his benevolent good favor gives us, gives us to us the transforming power we need to, to sustain in every dimension of spiritual life. I know many of you think and understand grace, okay? You're saved by grace, and you've known this for a gazillion years. But I discover that many, even many Christians, although they know they're saved by grace, sure don't act like it. In fact, they spend most of their time thinking and acting like we're saved by works. For many of you, you even know that you're saved by grace and you, you don't get into heaven by doing good works. Your entire life is built on pleasing God by trying to be perfect. And you think God is some unpleasant parent up there in the sky and watching your every move. That's good, that's bad. And you think you have to earn God's approval. You think if you do a certain number of good works, uh, God's going to say, good girl, good guy, that, you got it, that's right. And if you don't do those things, God says, forget it, man. You're, you're worthless, absolutely worthless. You're saved by grace, but you're li actually living by works. When you really understand grace, it's going to bring so much joy to your life. It is the most liberating thing in the world. You, you can be a Christian for 20, 25, 30, 35 years and never really learn to live by grace. So, many, so my time here is, is, is short with you. And I hope, my hope is that you will not just understand grace, but you will experience it or experience it more so. Okay? And you will feel it and you will enjoy the grace of God in your life, because it does bring a lot of joy, so much joy. Today, I want to start very fundamental, a, a, a very nice uh, foundation. A lot of the stuff you heard before all your life, but we're going to say it anyways, okay? It's important. So we're going to be talking about saving grace, saving grace, all right? Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bamvik defined the saving grace of God as his voluntary unrestrained, unmerited, favored towards guilty sinners, granting them justification and life instead of the penalty of death which they deserve. The free bestowed of kindness and one who has no claim to it, let's put it this way. The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners. Contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit, it is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and who had no reason to expect anything but severity. Now, here's another angle, and I want you to stay with me, okay? When we show mercy, it looks as if we are responding to pain and being constrained by a painful condition outside ourselves. It is a beautiful constraint, but it does not seem to be as free as grace. 
Grace, however, contemplates the ugliness of sin and, contrary to all expectation, acts beneficially. Now, this looks more free. Pain seems to constrain mercy, but guilt does not seem to constrain grace. Grace looks more free. And I don't mean that God's mercy is, in fact, less free than his grace. No one deserves God's mercy. And God is not bound to be merciful to any of his creatures. What I do mean is that freeness lies closer at the heart of the meaning of grace. Grace, by definition, is free and unconstrained. It even lacks the seeming constraint of naturalists that exists between suffering and mercy. If God's grace is natural in response to sin, it is owning entirely to something amazing in God. Not in the constraining power of sin, suffering constrains pity, but sin kindles anger. Therefore, grace towards sinners, us, is the freest of all God's acts. Got it? No, but you will. Go online and hear it three or four times. I had to say this, I had to say this 100 times so I can understand myself, or that's the whole situation. Okay, here we go. The first on your outline. Here's the first letter. We're going by letters here. Number one, G, God's gift to me. Simple. God's gift to me. Romans 3.24, chapter 3, verse 24. All of us need to be made right with God by his grace, which is a free gift through Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. Because of this American work ethic, many people think that they're saved by works, by earning their way to heaven, by being good enough that God says, okay, come on in. If you were to ask 50 to 100 people along the sidewalk, how do you get to heaven? How do you get there? You get a lot of different answers, a lot of different answers. But basically, they would summarize this. You've got to earn it. You've got to earn your way to heaven. You hear things like, the way to get to heaven is to try to be really good and do the best you can. Or real hard work at being good and just try to be good. Be a good moral person is what I hear. Be a good moral person. Or do more good things in life than you do bad things in life. And you're, if you pile this, this good stuff over here really high and the bad piles over here real small, God's going to say, hey, you're okay. Come on in. Let's go. All right? It's all based on works. It's not based on grace. You need to understand that God says here that salvation, again, is absolutely free. You don't work for it. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other faith, every other belief system, I don't care what it is, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Grail Movement, Heaven's Gate, Donald Duck, whatever. You can't. It doesn't mean anything. You can summarize those religions in just one word. Of all the other religions, Christianity, Christianity is the only religion that's built on grace. That says God is just, he gives you salvation. You don't do anything to earn it. 
Every other religion is based on works. And you can summarize them in one word. Do, D-O. There are certain things you do in order to gain God's approval. It varies. Every system is different. One religion says, do these things. Another religion says, do those things. It is always something you have to do. You got rules, you got um, rituals, regulations, etc., etc. On the other hand, if you were to summarize Christianity in one word, it's the word done, D-O-N-E, done. It's already been done for you. It was done at the cross of Jesus Christ. He paid for your salvation. He paid for your sins. It's already been done. Now, grace is epitomized on the cross of Calvary. While the grace of God is described in the Old Testament, it is not defined until the New Testament. I believe that we cannot grasp the grace of God except in light of Calvary. Grace is not merely a part of the plan of redemption, but you know what it is? It's this kind of like a silver cord that runs through every facet of the work of redemption. You have election, the sovereign choice made in eternity past for those who would be saved, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It is called a choice of grace. That's what it's called, a choice of grace, Romans 11, verse 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The entire work of Christ is coming to earth, dying for sinners, uh, and being crowned with glory is said by the writer of the Hebrews to be by the grace of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Our calling the sovereign act of God by which we are drawn irresistibly to him is said to be through, the, through his grace. Romans 8, 28, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. You have justification, that uh, judicial pronouncement that we are innocent of any guilt and whereby we are declared righteous through the work of Christ, again, as a gift of his grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. I believe Titus chapter 3. Verse 7, church, when all is said and done, every element of the work of salvation is the work of God through grace and not of our own. And to know this, men believe by the grace of God. B, grace is the part of Grace, grace is a part of the character of God. It's a part of the character of God. Grace is the most frequently spoken of an asset that is distributed. But first and foremost, grace is a description of the character of God, which he's displayed by his gifts to men. God is a God of grace, and he desires to make this known, not only to men, but also to the angelic host. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, 
to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery, mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he proposed purpose in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. The next letter on your outline. Number two, the letter R, received by faith. Say received by faith. Mm. God's gift is received by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Circle faith or in your head or in pencil. And this is not from yourselves, okay? What is it? It's a gift for, of, uh, of God. Not, not, none of us can work for it. None of the works so that no one can boast. You can't brag about it. Faith is the key that unlocks the door to heaven. Simple. It's just a gift, but you have to receive it by faith. If I have a gift for you and say, wait, I got to look for something here real quick. Got something here. Very important. I don't know if I still have it. It might be lost. Okay, I got one. Uh, here's the gift. Okay, here's, here's a, a bona fide, it's not Monopoly money. It's a $100 bill, okay? Uh, if you believe, you can come and get it. Okay, I'm going to put it right here. There it is. It, was, it will just sit there unless you come and receive it by faith. If you, have, you have to have faith that I'm going I'm to give it to you. But this morning, this is my, my $100 if you bill for me, okay? Okay, I'm going to put it back in my pocket so none of you guys get, you know. All right. That's right, you don't want to do that yet. Okay, he says because salvation is a gift, you can't brag about it. If you could work your way to heaven, check this out. If you can work your way to heaven, do you realize how miserable it would be if you start bragging up in heaven? Everybody would be bragging about how they got there. We will be trying to up one each other with great stories of what great people we were on this planet Earth. But God says, it's a, it's a gift, man, for your salvation. You can't brag about it. Romans 4, 16. People receive God's promise by having faith. This happens so that the promise can be a free gift. Salvation isn't based on my performance. It is based on God's promise. It's not based on my goodness. It's based on God's grace. I'm getting to heaven not based on my own merit, right? But God's mercy that's why he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. It's a free gift that received, it's received by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We were formerly dead in our trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath. Very important word, wrath. Let me tell you something. God's wrath is not popular. It's not a popular topic in, in our day. But if you're going to get rid of the concept, you may as well get rid of the entire Bible. Because it's, it's throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It reaches a climax throughout the book of Revelation, which shows that God will pour out his wrath 
on this evil world, right? Culminating in the final eternal judgment of the lake of fire. That's what's going to happen because all people have sinned. We are alienated from God in his holiness, and all who are not saved are under God's righteous judgment, objects of his wrath, okay? So you have this uh, theologians, liberal ones, that is, okay? I have always emphasized God's love and denied his wrath. But in our day, this is, this is kind of watered-down thinking in this liberal circles. It is also popular, unfortunately, among those who profess to be evangelicals. Case in point, way back, if you remember 60 Minutes, okay, still on the air, okay, so it's not way too far back. There was a segment that uh, Joel Olstein, pastor of the American's largest church and the author of the bestseller, Your Best Life Now. And back then, it was uh, this guy named Brian Pitts, the, the host of the show. He was surprised, completely surprised, this host, at the absence of any mention of God or Jesus Christ in the main points of Olsen's book, to become a better you, that is. And Olsen's response was this, that's just my message. There is scripture in there that backs it up. But I feel, Brian, I'm, I'm called to help people. How do we walk? The Christian life? How do we live it? And these are the principles that can help you in my book. I mean, there's a lot of better people qualified than me to say, here's a book that's going to explain the scriptures to you. I don't do that. That's not my gift. He's got that right. But then why is he a pastor? How can you genuinely help lost folks if you don't point them to the cross of Christ? The point is, if we are not under God's wrath, then Jesus didn't have to go to the cross, and we don't need to be saved. We can go home. I can have my lunch from you guys here. But by going to the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that we are under because, because of our sin. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved. It says there, I don't, it's not me. Either you have been saved or you haven't. There's no middle ground. Either Jesus has rescued you from God's wrath or you're not saved. Simple. I like this one, transforming grace. Very important. Chemistry. Chemistry has performed many wonderful feats of transformation. What is more, what is more black and dirty and unpromising than coal tar? Yet it has been changed into the most beautiful, useful colors. But the grace of God has wrought still more marvelous wonders. What could be more filthy, more filthy and unpromising than a God-hating, blaspheming sinner soaked as in a cesspool of inequity as possessed by the spirit of the devil? Yet the grace of God, as a, by a spiritual chemistry, has transformed such deprived and hopeless characters, that's me, that's us, into the most beautiful and useful lives. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so 
that no one may what? Boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Salvation through faith alone means that we receive salvation through trusting in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Many people misunderstand the nature of saving faith. Some have a sort of general vague faith God, faith in God, okay? Whoever he may be up there, okay, the good man out there, old man up there. That kind of positive thinking, it's not, what is that? Or they might say, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows, okay? I believe in the basic goodness of people and the goodness of God. Everything will turn out for the good in the end. But that is not saving faith. Some think that faith is a mere assent to certain facts, okay? In other words, they think that making the decision to accept Christ constitute saving faith, even if there's no repentance or no obedience to Christ Jesus. That kind of assent to the facts of the gospel is not saving faith. To understand saving faith, you need to grasp two vital things. Two. Saving faith includes knowledge, assent, and trust. First, there must be knowledge. There is a content to be understood. Some say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. That's like saying it doesn't matter what medicine you take as long as you're sincere. Okay? It matters greatly the kind of medicine you should take. The right medicine, right? How much of it? The dose. What time you take it? You take it the wrong time, you take too much, guess what? You die. So to be saved, you must know something about God. His righteousness, holy, just, and loving. You must also know that you have sinned against God and stand guilty and what condemned before him. You must know that Jesus is the eternal son of God who took a, what, human flesh, born of the virgin. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for sinners like you and me, paying on their behalf the penalty that God demands. But God raised him from the dead and he, he ascended into heaven. He will return bodily to judge the living and the dead, but also to save all that have trusted in him. Amen? These are just basic facts revealed in the Good Word Bible that you must know to be saved. But you also, you must give assent to these facts or agree that they are true. A student could know all the facts well enough to pass an exam, but not affirm that they are true. Saving faith includes intellectually ascending to the truth of the gospel. But if that is all the saving grace entails, or entails uh, uh, then Satan and the demons are saved. They, they know these things. They absolutely do. They know these things, and they know they are true. The third element of saving faith is personal trust, commitment, obedience. Very important. So you may be an expert on the aircraft. You know a... That, that, that certain plane, very well how it's constructed and mechanically sound. You know about aircrafts. You may also agree that the plane will fly. You've watched it fly many times. You, you affirm that it's a good plane. Yes, it's a good plane. But knowing these facts and agreeing to them will not get you anywhere. To get to a destination, you must, what, commit yourself to get on board the plane. Saving faith is personally trusting Jesus Christ, committing 
your eternal destiny, that is, to what he did for you on the cross, just as you entrust your life totally to the pilot when you're on board the plane. So you entrust your internal destiny totally to Jesus and his death as your substitute on the cross. You trust God's promise that he will justify you, the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. Getting on board is very important with Christ, is that you can't keep one foot on the terminal of sin and then the other on board with Christ. You can't, you can't be doing this number and get on the plane. It's not going to work. You must commit yourself to follow him, to obey him as your Lord and Savior. B, saving faith does not originate with us. How much time do I got? Okay, I got the time. Paul stresses this point kind of in a redundant way. He just he does it over and over again. You have done absolutely nothing to earn salvation by being good. God's plan of salvation by grace places all humans on the same footing. No one can boast or point with pride to personal accomplishments in the realm of salvation, right? We can't do that. No one person has done anything in this arena. God has done it all, everything. The word that, T-H-A-T, when you read this, refers to the entire process of salvation by grace through faith. It is all from God, not of ourselves. Whichever view you take, there, there are other scriptures that show that saving faith and repentance are linked are not from ourselves, but what gift of God's. For example, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, the response of the Jewish Christians when they heard the Gentiles getting saved is, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Acts chapter 3, verse 16 um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, yeah. So Paul has shown that salvation, being rescued from God's wrath, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in what Jesus did at the cross. Three, the letter A, guess what? It's available to everyone. Available to everyone. God doesn't play favorites here. Regardless of your background, regardless of your status, regardless of your sin. It doesn't matter whether you have been a religious person or non-religious person or you have any religion background at all whatsoever. Romans chapter 14, verse 16. The promise is not only for those people that live under the law of Moses. It is for anyone who lives with faith like Abraham. I love that. Who are these people who live under the law of Moses? Who are these folks? They're the Jews. The Jews, Jewish people were given the law of Moses. Moses was their leader. They were given uh, the ways of God to do the right thing before the rest of us were given them. Have you ever thought about why the Jews were called God's chosen people? Does God love them more than he loves us? No. They were chosen for a purpose. They were chosen to spread the message to everybody else, to tell the world that there's only one true God. That's what they were chosen for. They were kind like, they were like missionaries to us. Now God has taken that task and given it to the church, which includes Jews, Gentiles, and everybody else who put their faith in Christ. God says it's available to anybody who opens up their heart in faith. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will, will, will be what? Will be saved. 
Call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. There are no quotas in heaven. It doesn't say only really good people will be saved, okay? If they, if they call on the name of the Lord really religious people, really smart people, no. It says anybody, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord who has faith in, in the grace of God will be, will be saved. The sad thing is that even though many people know that God offers his grace, his unconditional gift to us, they still try to work their way to heaven. They think that something in their life is making them good enough that they don't need to receive God's gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Four, the letter C. Grace comes through Christ. Amen? Grace comes through Christ. John chapter 1, verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Why through Jesus Christ? Why is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? I hear that many times. When I always go to the school, public schools, they, go, they, don't, they don't believe that. They don't want to believe that. I ask them, the only way to heaven is Jesus. You Christians, only don't, there's only one way. Yeah, there's only one way. There's only one way. Why Buddha? Why not him? Okay. Why not somebody else? Why Jesus? Because he paid the price of admission. Okay. He's already paid for your salvation. Nobody else has done that. On the cross, he paid for your sins. Grace is free, no doubt about that, but it is not cheap. It's not cheap grace, folks. It cost Christ his life. He paid for your ticket. The law tells me when I do wrong, it says you blew it. But grace says, here's how you get back on track. You're forgiven. Let's, let's start new again. Let's, let's go on. Romans chapter 5, verse 15. 515. Many people have received God's gift of life by the grace of the one who, one man, that is Jesus Christ. In the Bible, the favorite description for someone who has grace, who has accepted God's grace, the favorite description for a believer in, in the term, it's called in Christ. That's the phrase. You hear that? In Christ. In Christ is used about, I believe, 120 times in the New Testament. It refers to somebody who has found salvation through the grace of God being in Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Don't treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if we could be saved by keeping the law, by doing good, that is, then there was no need for Christ to die. Simple. If you could be saving and could go to heaven on your own merit, the cross was a waste of time. If you could have gotten to heaven without any help from God, Jesus wouldn't have to come down here and die on the cross for you. He wouldn't have wasted his time himself that way. But there was no other way. Absolutely no other way. You're either going to go to heaven in Christ or you're going someplace else. It's a free gift. You just have to accept it in faith. Grace is all that God does for me because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Number five, the last one, you can go home. The letter E, it's extended throughout eternity. Extended throughout eternity. Romans chapter six, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The results of grace, of God's grace, are going to go on and on forever, church. Eternal life is one of the benefits of grace. Eternal life. I love that. You could say that grace is a gift that keeps on giving. And God says, basically what he does, he saves the best for last. He does. And it's yet to come. With Jesus Christ, it just, just gets better and better and better. And the Bible says the free gift of God is eternal life in heaven. Amen? Let's give it up for Jesus. All right. Yes, heaven's going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. 
this gentleman, look him up, you can Google him. Peter Drunkard was one of the most widely known and influential thinkers uh, on management. He wrote a lot of books, uh, printed a lot of stuff on the Wall Street Journal, written dozens and dozens of books and textbooks. He's a very brilliant man. He was asked a question, though. The question was this, church. How did, you, how did you become a Christian? How was it? And he said this. When somebody first explained grace to me, I realized I was never going to get a better deal. Okay? You're never going to get a better deal than what we talked about today. Okay? So let's all stand. Let's all stand. Stretch our bones here. Now, here's the deal. If you want to be saved today and be given the gift of life, everlasting, you need a ticket. And Jesus is that ticket. 